Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how the king of Sodom presented a serious temptation for Abraham after his victory in the battle over the five kings. This message is available for free download at Friendship with God and on iTunes. But the water was free. The water was free. But the government did not bring the water to the farms. Each farmer had to dig his own water ditches to bring the water to his own farm. Each farmer had to channel the free water to his own farm. And the ground of each farmer, it it, it didn't do anything unless they brought the free water there. And then when it did, it just blossomed. And you know the productivity of the Imperial Valley. So living near the free water didn't do anything for any farmer. It was only when each farmer got to work and channeled the water to his own farm. That's what Abraham did. As a prophet in his home, he channeled the free water of the knowledge of God into his own home. And when Abraham was prophet in his home, he took the time to teach his household. And he was, what he was doing there, he was channeling the free water of the knowledge of God into his household. As a prophet, Abraham served his home by being the prophet in the home. Next, Abraham was the priest in the home. Abraham served his children. He served his servants by praying for each one of them as a priest. He knew that he could not intelligently, and you and I cannot also, intelligently pray for anyone unless we know them. And Abraham took time with all of those people in his household to get to know them. So that when he prayed, he didn't pray off of a two-dimensional piece of paper with a person's name on it. He prayed with a three-dimensional picture in his mind and he saw each person because he knew each person because he spent time to get to know each person in his household so he could pray for them he he knew the strengths of those people in his household he knew their weaknesses so he could pray for them he knew their aspirations of each one of them so he could pray for them and that was hard work and that is hard work for us as well to know the people we pray for to know each one's strengths, their weaknesses, their aspirations. And why did he do that? Because that's what it took for Abraham to be the priest in the home. He was serving his household by interceding for each one of them. And as he prayed for each one of them, he sees the three-dimensional picture in his mind. He sees them. He sees them in their strengths individually. He sees them in their weaknesses. He sees them in their aspirations. That's what Job was doing as the priest of his household, when it says in Job 1.5, it says Job offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all, speaking of his children, for Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Just thus did Job continually. That's the picture of a faithful priest in the home, Job. That's what he was doing, serving his family as a priest in the home, interceding to God for each one. And every morning in Takati, our school staff, they meet in groups and they pray for each one of the 100 students there. They intercede for each one of the 100 students. They know each student's strengths and weaknesses and aspirations. And as I said, when they're six years old, they graduate from our school. And, and, and what we do is that for the month before they graduate, we create this memorial, this memorial video of the graduating students and of their, of their aspirations. 
So as six-year-olds, we, we've, we've been with them for a long time. We know them. We know what their aspirations are. We know what they want to become when they grow up. And so for the month before graduation, our video team and our graphics team, they dress up the students in what they want to be. A little, they dress them up as little teachers, little scientists, little architects, little doctors, little ballerinas, little singers, little firemen, and little veterinarians. And then, we, and then for the month before we go into Cotty to the schools, or well, our school, and the laboratories, well, our laboratory, and the construction sites, well, our construction site. And we go to the hospitals and the ballet studios and the recording studios and the fire stations and the animal hospitals. And then our little graduating six-year-olds act out being a teacher and, and, and scientist and architect and, and so forth. And then for graduation day, we show that video in our auditorium and give them each a copy. So, and we pray. We pray to God for each student that they will honor God in their lives by standing up for God and by speaking out for God. So we talk to God about each student. And as the prophet in the home, Abraham talked to his household about God. And then as the priest in the home, Abraham talked to God about his household. So as the prophet in the home, Abraham prays with his family. As the priest in the home, Abraham prays for his family. And then as king in the home, king in the home, he uses authority. He uses authority to guide his household. That's what God said. I know Abraham. He's going to command. He's going he's to be a faithful king in the home. He's going to command them to honor God by keeping the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. So he serves his household. Abraham serving his household by having them all meet together for times of instruction and prayer. And king in the home, he's, he, he's not wishy-washy. Abraham's not wishy-washy. He doesn't, he's not looking at other homes. He didn't care to honor God and said, well, that's, that's now how, he, he says, let them do what they want. He didn't do that. He really took the position of Joshua. When Joshua says, really looked at all the others and he said, look, Joshua 24, 15, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your fathers served on the other, they were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, decisions made, we will serve the Lord. By training his household, Abraham was doing what it says in Proverbs 22.16, where it says, train up a child, 22.6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he won't depart for it. That word train, chanak, that word train means to narrow. It's a narrow. That's what it means. It means to narrow. Literally, it means to narrow a child in the way he should go. People might look at Abraham's household and say, your household is too narrow. You don't, let your, you don't let your household have fun. They don't go to wild parties. and so It's too narrow, Abraham. And that's, that's exactly what Abraham was doing. That's what the obedient, believing parent does. He narrows his child in the way he should go. Others can, you can't. Others may criticize, but we want so much to hear God say, I know him, that he will command his children in his household. I know him. He'll take control and lead his family. I know him. He won't let his family just float and drift down the Niagara River of the world. I know him. He will command his children. And remember that this strong leadership that Abraham had was was not the proud, you know, I'm always right. And he didn't have that kind of attitude, you know. Um, Remember who we're studying about here. This is Abraham, who in chapter 12 had sinned as a coward. And this is Abraham who in chapter 13 who confessed his sin and was repaired by God. This is Abraham who in chapter 13 humbled himself 
before Lot and submitted to younger Lot, calling him from that point on brother. Why? For the love of peace and the love of unity. That's why it says that Abraham trained his servants born in his house. He did, you know, he didn't say to his, save, his servants, no, you all live like you want to live. You know, you're not my flesh and blood, but let me tell you something. My tent door separates between you and me. He didn't have that attitude at all. Because Abraham said, in essence, to his servants, I, I love you. I will serve you as my own children. As your prophet, I will teach you. As your priest, I will pray for you. As your king, I will guide and command you. So it was a blessing to be in Abraham's home. It was a great thing. One of those blessed ones was Eliezer of Damascus, who we're going to see later on. We're going to study the great things that happened in chapter 24. He was trained in knowing God. And Abraham's children and the servants were all trained to follow Abraham. And when God commanded Abraham to circumcise in chapter, in the, in chapter we're going to come to in chapter 17, and God said, you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a token of covenant betwixt me and you in chapter 17, verse 11. Abraham circumcised himself and everyone in his house, as it says in, in chapter 17, verse 23. Abraham took Ishmael's son, all that were born in his house and all that were bought with his money, every male among the children, the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. And Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That's something. Why? Because Abraham had trained his children and his servants. He said, me first, you follow. Now, he was faithful, and God revealed the secret to him that he was going to suddenly destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he revealed that secret to Abraham, it was a great gift to Abraham. The gift was Abraham had an opportunity to intercede, which he did in chapter 18, to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a special opportunity for Abraham to pray for Sodom and Gomorrah, to pray for mercy. That, and he did. He took it and he, he said, if there's just 10 righteous people, we have spared the city. And he got the promise. That's a challenge for us. Because just as God did for Abraham, God reveals to us as we read his word that sudden destruction is going to come. On the, it's just around the corner for the lost and, and, and we're to pray for them and we're to intercede for them and make sure that God does not say about us what he said in Isaiah 59, 16. And he saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no intercessor. Now, we see in verse 14 that Abraham pursues the captives all the way to Dan, which is just above the Lake of Galilee. Very long distance, about two weeks, about 200 miles. And in verse 15, we see that after a long journey all the way to Dan above the Lake of Galilee, which so, so we can imagine Abraham, he's, you know, he's been traveling for all this time to finally reach his enemy. And then he reaches his enemy. There they were, tens of thousands of them. It's a pleasant evening. We can imagine the enemy is close to going home to Syria. Close. And, and, and it's been a long time. It's been two weeks for them since they've been in battle. And they're feeling all secure and all at ease. And the war's over and they spoiled their enemies, and they've got men captives and women captives and goods, and they had those, those, all that for two weeks, and they have no idea that they're being pursued by an army of 319. And as the enemy beds down that night, the last thing they expect is an attack. And that's how Abraham finds them, all peacefully settled down, sleeping at night, 
and he decides that against tens of thousands, he has to use the element of surprise. And so he, he has to appear to be a much larger army than he is, so he divides his, his group into two parts. And he has, to catch the, he has to catch them off guard, so he decides to attack them when they're asleep. And we can imagine Abraham doing the math, <laughs> and, he says, and, he, and he turns to his men, he says, Men, each one of you is going to have to keep a tight grip on your swords. That's a big army out there, and by my calculation, you have to, each one of you, be prepared to kill a hundred men. And we can imagine that Abraham, before the attack, he says, now before we attack, he says, I've got to get alone with God. And he gets alone with God, and he calls on the name of the Lord to help him in this battle, one against a hundred. And, and then he gives the signal, they attack, and from the two sides, and the killing is great. It's a great slaughter. And the enemy doesn't know what hit them. The enemy is shocked. The enemy doesn't know what's happening. And instead of getting their weapons and fighting, they decide to run for their lives. And they run for their lives all the way to, into Syria on the left of Damascus to this place. And there Abraham just lets the, rest, the, the survivors go and comes back to Dan and recovers everything the enemy has left behind, as it says in verse 16. The, all the goods, the, again, his brother, Lot, his goods, the women also, and the people. And now Abraham, in verse 17, he is returning triumphant with all the goods from the conquered kings and all the people and all the children, the, 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 the women and, and Lot and his goods. And maybe Abraham is saying to himself, you know what, it's been a long, exhausting month. A month of pursuit, a month of battle, a month of recovery. I'm tired. I want to get home. And maybe he's thinking that maybe now I can finally let my guard down and relax. Enough with the killing. But as the Japanese proverb says, after the victory, the shogun is told, Tighten your helmet straps. <laughs> you can't relax. And Kedar Loarmi, Loamar, you know who I'm talking about. Abraham's enemy, he may have been slaughtered, but Satan, Abraham's enemy, he wasn't slaughtered. And a counterattack is about to be mounted against Abraham. And this counterattack in Abraham's exhausted state starts with the exaltation of Abraham, the great military hero. Abraham, the great military hero who just hero who just slaughtered tens of thousands with just 319 men. And here comes the temptation in verse 17. Who comes out to applaud Abraham, to congratulate Abraham? The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedar Laomer and of the kings who were with him and so forth. Abraham is really the celebrity now. Here he is. And now his military campaign has a name. It's called the slaughter of the king of Kedolaramir. And all the stories are going around how great Abraham is. And, and Abraham is, is being congratulated by none other than the king of Sodom. Who's the king of Sodom? He represents a serious temptation for Abraham. He is being praised by the king of the Sodomites. And that's a great temptation for Abraham to let his guard down, overlook this God-defying sin of the king of the Sodomites, because the king of the Sodomites is now congratulating Abraham. And those congratulations and those, those praises, it puts Abraham in a fining pot. It puts Abraham in a furnace that's described in, in Proverbs 27, 21. As the fining pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. And Abraham is tempted to say, I'm tired of fighting. It's been a long month. The king of Sodom is praising me. 
He's honoring me. So what's so wrong with homosexuality? It's an alternative lifestyle. Sodom is like the hill crest of the land. If they want to live that way, who am I to judge them? The crisis is over what is righteousness. That's the crisis here. That's what's on the line. What is right? And from verse 17, the first person we see coming out and welcoming and congratulating Abraham on his return is the king of Sodom, who is the king of unrighteousness. That's who he is. He's the king of the Sodomites. So the king of unrighteousness is the first to come out and meet Abraham. And it's very hard for Abraham. And God sees how hard it is for Abraham and his exhaustion. But the only one there to welcome him and congratulate him is this king of unrighteousness. So what does God do? Verse 18. God sends another king in verse 18. And this king is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, and he comes. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. So to rescue Abraham from letting his guard down with the king of unrighteousness, God immediately sends to Abraham Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. What's that show? It shows that there's no temptation taken you, taken us. But such as is common to man. Happens all the time. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God sends to Abraham the king of righteousness to strengthen Abraham so that he'll be able to take his stand against the king of unrighteousness. We'll have to stop there. Father, thank you so much for being faithful to Abraham, to watch over him even in his weakness all along the way to send him just what he needs. It reminds us, Lord, of how you sent angels to strengthen the Lord Jesus and the temptation of the wilderness. Thank you, Father, for who you are in Jesus' name. Tom, today you mentioned the king of unrighteousness, who was essentially tempting Abraham, similar to how the devil tempts us. Now, the devil is called the prince of the world, like the king of Sodom was called the king of unrighteousness. But can you explain to us how the devil is called the prince of this world? Right. Well, it is unusual to think of the devil as the prince of this world because, first of all, a prince has power. And so we, we, we ask ourselves a question, how can, the, how can the devil have power? Well, we know the devil has power, but we have to, first of all, understand that all power comes from God. And so if the devil has power, that means that he's been given power by God. In John 19.11, when the Lord Jesus Christ was standing in front of Pilate, and Pilate said, I have power to release you, then the Lord Jesus Christ clarified to him in verse 11, and he said these words to Pilate. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. See, he said, you have power, Pilate, because you've been given power. By who? By God. By, as he put it, given thee from above. So the devil has power because he's been given power from above. And when he went through his own temptation in Matthew 4, 8 through 9, one of the three temptations was that the devil, it says, Uh, taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. The Lord Jesus Christ was taken up by the devil, it says, into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, 
All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. So here the devil is showing the Lord Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and then he's making an offer, I'll give them to you if you fall down and worship me. Worship me. Do you know what? The devil had those kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and he could give them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ would not fall down and worship him. But the point is, is that he had those kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Why? Because he was given those by God. So why has the God given this power to the devil? Because the devil having this power from God works very well in God's plan to make this world a trying place, a place of trials. You know, it says in 1 Peter 1.7 that our faith is very precious. And it says that the trial of our faith makes it even more precious, our faith, because it purifies it. It puts it like this, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. As difficult as it is to go through, it's like putting the fire to gold in order to burn out the dross that contaminates and pollutes the gold. And so the trials that God allows to come into our lives are trials of our faith. And what happens is that it's a fire that goes in and it burns out the dross. It burns out the dross of unbelief. It burns out the dross of doubting God. It burns out the dross of sin. And so that when we come through that trial, our faith is more is is pr- more precious because it's pure gold and it comes out and and everybody looks at it including ourselves and we say oh to the praise and honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ I am now more pure for him Tom you've spoken about Abraham having God's presence or being a temple of God in comparison can you elaborate a little bit more on this and what it really means for a man to be a temple of God Well, basically, what that means is that man needs God. And the description of man uh, being a temple of God, in other words, having God's presence, is really given to us in Psalm 1. The whole psalm, it says, it describes this man. He says, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So it starts off by talking about what this, what man does not do as the temple of God. He doesn't take counsel from those who don't love God. He doesn't stand in the way of those who are sinning against God. He doesn't sit and find his recreation and his enjoyment sitting in the seat of the scornful against God. But, it says in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and is his law does he meditate day and night. And then it describes him in verse 3. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Why is that true? Because God is with him. God is in him. He is a temple of God. But by contrast, in verse 4, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Man needs God. To have God is to say no to the world, no to the counsel of the ungodly, no to the way of the sinners, no to the seed of the scornful. It's to say yes to the law of God and make it your delight. It's to say, yes, I'll meditate in it day and night. It's to depend on God and it's to experience God's blessing. And then what happens is that that establishes the person in God and he will will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That's what it means to be a temple of God. It's to need God. It's to have God inside of you. It's to make God feel happy and at home in you because you've made God's word to be on the highest pedestal there in the home. Thank you for listening to Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Tom Cantor's written a powerful book that details 194 prophecies and fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, a wonderful book, especially at Christmas time, that shows scriptures comparatively from the Old Testament prophecy to the New Testament fulfillment. This amazing study reveals how Jesus of Nazareth was not just a historic figure, but the fulfillment of God's foretold plan to bring salvation to the Jews and Gentiles. A must-have for any Christian or a great gift to give to any Jewish person who may be searching for the truth and evidence of the scriptures and who the Messiah really is. It's even a great witnessing tool for an atheist showing that the Bible is statistically proven to be true. Just a little taste of a few of the 2,500 prophecies that are in the Bible shows that God becoming a man born of a virgin of the seed of David and Abraham who would be betrayed and suffer and die for the sins of the world. This is a wonderful book. It's yours today for a donation of $20 or more. It also supports this radio program and Jewish evangelism. Call us today, 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. Or again, call us today, $20 or more donation, 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. 3051. Thanks for supporting the Friendship with God radio program. Join us tomorrow.